there's a gap between healthcare and digital technologies. And today's guest is the foremost thought leader and influencer educating and preparing patient consumers globally for what's to come. Meet a medical doctor with a PhD who is better known as the medical futurist, sharing with us his insights and what he envisions the future of healthcare will be. If you haven't visited Healthcare360 on YouTube, please do so by typing in Healthcare360 with Scotty Burgess in the search bar. This is where you can view this full episode, as well as all the many short clip deep dives on various topic points pulled from today's episode. To date, we have over 275 videos posted with valuable content and now have surpassed the 4,000 subscribers mark in as little as seven weeks. A huge shout out to the nation. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. Oh, and before I forget, if you're new to YouTube and Healthcare360 channel, hit the thumbs up, hit the subscribe button, share, and add a comment to the discussion. Your support and sharing this episode really helps the nation grow. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, it would mean a lot to the Healthcare360 team if you could take a moment and write us a review, as reviews are the lifeblood to podcast growth and longevity. Have a topic to bring to the nation? Head on over to scottyburgess.com and schedule a meeting with me personally. If Instagram is more convenient, you can reach me at my Instagram handle at Scott E. Burgess. Now, let's jump into our conversation with Dr. Masco, the medical futurist, and be prepared to see the future. Hey, Dr. Masco, how are you, sir? Hi, Scott. Thank you. I'm really fine. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. You're in Germany? I'm in Budapest, in Hungary. Oh, you're in Hungary. My accent is strange. It might be German as well, but I live in Budapest. Okay. Look, I know we don't have much time, and uh, I definitely want to tap into that brilliant brain of yours and all the information. I believe we can help a lot of people today. So I'm going to jump right into it. Welcome back to another episode of Healthcare 360. I'm your host, Scott Burgess. This topic has been asked for for quite a long time. Uh, Who we have in front of us today, I am a a very big fan of. So Dr. Masco, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for being available. For all those who are looking to get in touch with Dr. Masco or what he is doing, you can check him out at medicalfuturist.com. I am telling you, his articles, his blogs, his website is more than informative. It's really a one-stop shop. Combined with the previous episode that we had recorded with Jill Mullings, Dr. Masco is going to just overflow your brain with what's to come, what to expect, how to expect it, and where to go, and alternatives. Before we jump into it, if you are an Apple subscriber, thank you. If you're not an Apple subscriber and you're new to the channel, please subscribe. We really appreciate that. And don't forget to write us a review. If you're watching this on YouTube, thank you. We are accelerating quickly. We just surpassed 4,000 subscribers in six weeks. We appreciate the best and brightest coming on, subscribing. If you're new to the channel, subscribe, hit the notification bell. You know the deal. Without further ado, Dr. Masco, how are you, sir? Thank you so much, Scott. You are too kind to me. And thank you for having me on the show. I'm really looking, really looking forward to it. Well, I know we're going to help a lot of people today and also just kind of give them a, something curious to think about. Future. We don't have a crystal ball. Uh, sometimes we wish that we did. In the website that people are looking at right now on YouTube, you're helping organizations prepare for the future of healthcare in medicine and in pharma. From our patient consumer point of view, if you were to give the top three things, that people should be cognizant of and paying attention to, what would those top three be in your position? First of all, far the most important aspect here is is getting vaccinated. Happy to talk about this even in details, but without getting vaccinated, we have no chance 
of ending COVID-19 in the near future. We might be able in a decade or so, but not before that. The second is there is an amazing adoption rate of digital health technologies, those technologies that we can use to measure data about ourselves, vital signs, lifestyle insights, lifestyle choices, any data that we already owned and had, but we couldn't get access to. Now these digital health technologies make it happen. And the third is, is a very strange point. What's happening in healthcare and what has been going on in the 21st century in general might seem like a, a technological revolution. That artificial intelligence got into the picture. Yeah. We have health sensors and fitness smartwatches and all these amazing gadgets around ourselves. But the truth is that based on our research, we think that really a cultural transformation is going on in healthcare. So what really matters from the patient's perspective is that patients as the most underused resource in healthcare now become a member of the medical team. And this is, I think, one of, if not the biggest milestone in the history of medicine, that patients can contribute to the table, patients can provide their data, can share their insights, and they want to get engaged. Thus, they can take part in the decision made about their own disease and health management. This is not just simply amazing as an achievement, but it's a very important process because the way this change in the role of the patient shapes the doctor-patient relationship is more important than, you know, which microchip or health sensor comes out next year. Sure, I didn't sure. want to be too abstract with these three points, but these are the three things on my mind these days. I never heard that third point. That's really fascinating to me as far as being a member of the medical team, as far as that contribution. And I know in the episodes previous to this, a lot of the complaint, now you know the statistic as well as I do, that 80% of patient consumers are very frustrated with their local or the general healthcare system at large because they just feel they're not being listened to. And for the doctors that we've had on the show, they will often say out of a 20-minute conversation, 15 minutes of that goes towards notes or computer computational input versus paying attention to the patient. So I'm actually really happy at the same time surprised that that's being recognized as the patient being a member of the medical team to the bottom line result. This frustration can be understood from both perspectives. From the doctor's perspective, they have a job where they have to spend more than half of their time doing administration. Yeah, absolutely. Would you do a job like that? But if you tell medical students today that by the time they start practicing medicine, they would spend half their day doing administration, sometimes on paper, mm -hmm. not even on interfaces, right. they would leave medical school immediately. That's where digital technologies come into the picture. There are now really simple to use apps that, or, that can help the doctor-patient meeting to take place in a different way, that they have a real-life conversation, and the app just writes down what the physician said, and what the physician does at the end of the meeting is just to confirm that this is the right summary that I had in mind, and this is what I said out loud, so yes, I confirm this, but I don't write it down. In the vision that we share at the Medical Futurist, the futuristic healthcare vision is about a doctor and a patient having a real-life conversation, eye-to-eye -eye contact, based on trust, while being surrounded by advanced, invisible, seamless technologies. Mm -hmm. So that perspective is understandable. From the patient's perspective, it's also understandable. We did a research, we published a research study when we interviewed the 13 most empowered patients, e-patients who publish in peer-reviewed medical journals and, and things yeah. like that. They are amazing. They are very futuristic. And when we asked about how they see the future doctor-patient relationship, and what kind of features they would look for, then all of them, without exception, said that they need three things. 
empathy, attention, and time. They didn't mention that they want AI to take part <laughs> in that or, you know, health sensors and sharing data through smartwatches. Yep. They wanted their physician to have a real-life relationship with. And that's what technologies can help make happen because the traditional healthcare format has failed. COVID just made it more transparent, but it has failed already. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's understood across the healthcare spectrum at large, too. So I want to go back to a topic that it's on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And this is something that Joe Mullings had said, there is going to be sensor recording devices, essentially, or apps or wearables, whatever product you want to put in place, that's going to be data recording. It's going to be recording three to four months worth of information. So by the time that patient goes to see their doctor, they simply do a quick download and they can see all the information helping the assessment, have an artificial intelligence contribute back into the overall what's going on scenario, why are you feeling this way, or you're doing great, there's nothing to modify. How do you feel about that first off? And then the second part of that question is, what about data security? The reason that's going to be on top of everyone's minds, you have Apples and the Googles of the world intermittently being hacked. They're being challenged every day, which most people do not know, protecting people's data. Because if information of that nature gets released, what about insurance companies, previous you know, medical history? These are two questions, right? Amazing <laughs> yeah, questions, two. by the way. Thank you. About the first one, I agree that this is the long-term vision of healthcare, that I just measure data blindly. It's being sent to a physician and AI helps check it out. And then I get the final conclusion. But I'm afraid in between there is a long line. And in that line, that's not going to work like that. It's going to work in a way that I measure data so I can contribute to my care. I want to get engaged. It's about my own health or disease. Mm -hmm. I want to have a long and healthy life or at least a chance for that. So of course, I'm happy to contribute. I measure data based on which I have insights about what has changed in my lifestyle, in my health, what might be very close to go wrong. And then I discuss it with a physician who might be using advanced technologies like artificial neurointelligence to make sure they get all the information they need to help me together be able to make the best decisions for my health or disease management. Yeah, It's not happening without me. I'm very much involved in that. And actually, I have been trying to live like someone like this, like the patient from the future. I can measure fitness data. I've been sleep tracking for more than six years now. I have a smart sleep alarm. I can measure ECG. I have a blood pressure monitor that measures heart rate, ECG, and has a digital stethoscope built into it. I've had my whole genome sequenced. I learned what kind of medical conditions I have a higher risk for, what kind of drugs would cause me side effects because if I metabolize them differently. I learned uh, what kind of diet I should have based on my microbiome, the, the bacteria living in my digestive system. So I've, I've been measuring this amazing, immense amount of data. And even being a doctor, without my primary care physician, who is quite a partner in this, I would be doomed I would feel left alone with a jungle of like a jungle being full of health and digital information. So that's why this is a cultural transformation. And, and that's the vision that I think it's worth fighting for, at least for now. Yeah. For the other question that you had about privacy and everything, I think we cannot live in an ideal world anymore. And we have to say out loud that you cannot enjoy the benefits of using digital health technologies without losing some of your privacy. And again, being a patient from the future, I can tell you that many of the companies I had a genetic testing service from, I'm sure they sold my data to third parties. They might 
try to anonymize the data, which is impossible with genomic data, and sold it to pharma companies. So mm. then they can use my data for clinical trials. I'm sure that the gadgets I use, uh, some of them are from countries with not so high threshold of quality when it comes to producing medical devices. I love using the device, but I'm sure that if someone wanted to hack it, they would be able to hack it without much efforts. Sure. But I'm writing this down, like this idea, this concern about privacy on Facebook that literally knows everything about me, mm-hmm. that can listen into my conversations. Even right now, my phone is next to me, muted, but I'm sure everything is heard by Facebook and by sure. Instagram. And if I say something like a brand name, I will get ads based on that. Right. So we have been tracked by the gadgets and applications we choose to use, but we are afraid of using a health gadget and get health benefits based on that. Nobody will want to hack my blood pressure monitor. Nobody will want to steal my heart rate logs of the last couple of months, but my bank card details. We have to say out loud that we have to lose some of our privacy to enjoy the benefits of digital health. My ethical standpoint is as long as I'm the one deciding how much I'm willing to lose of that privacy in exchange for a chance for a healthier and longer life, I should be ethically at least fine. But I'm afraid that's not the case in many countries now. That's a great point. Another follow-up question to that specific one. Do you think there's going to be a market for those who do not want to share, but can still record the data and use their own analysis at home? So for example, you mentioned uh, microbiome and sleep. So knowing the microbiome and what type of bacteria you have in your gut. And we just did an episode with Dr. Alan Goldhammer. He is probably the foremost authority in water fasting. And he talked about your microbiome and what that poos out. And now your body has to respond to on an immune response. You just did the testing for that, which is fantastic. So if you know what your microbiome is set up for and how to have that succeed continually, and then you have great sleep on top of it, which is allowing your body to heal, but you want to keep all your data private with all of the gadgets that you're choosing to use, do you think there's going to be a market for just an amenity altogether, or do you think that we have to still be comfortable with giving up some of those privacy rights? I'm afraid it wouldn't work that simply. But let's see, there is a company providing microbiome testing. It's a very trustful company, and I buy the service from them, and I click that. I don't want my data to be used even for research purposes. I click everything that I don't want my data to be shared with anybody. Mm -hmm. Let's say I trust that company. I get the microbiome results. That's just step number one. I got my mic. I'm a geneticist by training. I got my microbiome results, and I said, okay, you know what? I had to talk to a a dietitian and a primary care physician. So I'm sharing my data already. Then I had to choose and and use a dietary planning application in which I can log my diets and my meals and I can log the outcomes of my days and how I'm feeling in general, what kind of gastrointestinal issues I have, or if none, then still. And then I share that data with the company producing that application. And then again, my medical professionals. Mm -hmm. It's even theoretically impossible not to share data with anyone, even though you don't want it to be shared with anyone. I'm afraid that's just going to happen because of how complex healthcare decisions are and how complex, even more complex, analyzing medical data can be. I want to jump to an earlier point that you brought up. So you mentioned the three points, being vaccinated, 
your health tech and the data, and then AI. Going to AI specifically before, because I do want to ask you about the vaccination point, because that could be a controversial topic, but I think it needs to be an open topic at the same time, because there are two equations to this topic point. But before we go there, artificial intelligence. This is how I describe it. We're on Google 101 of artificial intelligence. It's been around for a while. It's just starting to kind of peek its head you know, over the countertop, revealing itself as what it can do as it's been learning in the background and we've been programming in the background. Where is it right now from your seat in the companies that you work with and you consult for? How far will it take it to make a significant contribution back to patient health? We have artificial narrow intelligence today. Nick Bostrom, I'm sure you know him. He's an amazing AI expert in the world and a philosopher. And in his book, Super Intelligence, he laid out the three levels of AI, which there are huge differences between each level. But on the first level, we have artificial narrow intelligence. What we have today, an AI that can perform a very well-defined single task amazingly well. After some time, you will have artificial general intelligence, meaning that one AI has your own cognitive capacity. Anything that you can do, the AI is capable of that too. Talking, writing, thinking in abstract terms, planning ahead, forecasting, and so on. And then we might have artificial super intelligence, meaning that one AI has humanity's combined cognitive capacity. Mm -hmm. That's the Terminator scenario, sure. basically. So we have artificial narrow intelligence today, and, and the more you read about it, the more studies you read about it, you realize how far artificial general intelligence is from artificial narrow intelligence. That's about your first question. Mm -hmm. But a second one, it doesn't mean that it cannot contribute significantly to patient care. In the last couple of years, we published studies about those algorithms that use some form of AI and have been approved by the, the Food and Drug Administration in the US, for example, having quite a high threshold for medical products. And we have found almost 100 medical technologies using AI every single day. And some of them are used in, in analyzing radiology images, CT scans looking for cancerous signs. Mm -hmm. Some of them are used in emergency medicine, uh, triaging patients, making sure to find out which patient should get treatment first because they have a risk for getting even more sick by the time. We've seen examples how to find new drug combinations for treating conditions we couldn't treat before or finding new drug molecules that could become a medication uh, through a clinical trial. AI being used for in clinical trials, making them in silico, meaning that you don't have to test drugs on patients anymore, but you can do the same testing process in a computer simulation. There are hundreds of examples like that. These algorithms are amazing at doing a very well-defined single task. Like an AI can play chess like nobody else. The best chess player these days is, is Lila, AlphaZero Lila, an algorithm. It can play a different game. It can do one task for a self-driving car. It can analyze CT scans, but nothing else. But healthcare is so complex that to see an AI performing such complex tasks as such as making a medical decision by looking at the patient, discussing the issues with them, looking at their data and so on, it's unfortunately still far away in the pipeline. It's not impossible, mm -hmm. but it's far away for now. I always come back to this one question continually. Not that no one's answered it before, but Again, from your position, there's a lot of development and there's a lot of research and there's a lot of money going towards diagnoses. Everyone know, who understands the healthcare system, that eventually leads to payment, okay? And that's just the structure of healthcare. That's how it's designed and that's what it is. But 
there's a significant lack in education on proper nutrition, proper health, and significantly, because you mentioned it, which is what I love about how you've done all your genetic testing, is how it relates back to the microbiome, which controls holistically and systemically everything in your body. Why the lack of research there? Why the lack of development? Is it not equate to a payment system? Because it still does, because it's still testing and everything else that needs to get done. It seems like a gap to me. I have a theory about this, but it's just a theory, nothing more than that. Sure. I think the research is there. We have all the data we need, but developing a technology or making a diagnosis is relatively simple compared to doing the same for a treatment process. Mm -hmm. Diagnosing um, atrial fibrillation to an ECG-based smartwatch is technologically much easier than creating a closed-loop artificial pancreas for a patient with diabetes. Technologically, it's just that simple compared to that. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to nutrition, it's so personalized that you cannot develop products or services that would work on a spectrum of a range of patients. Everybody has a different microbiome. Everybody has different dietary habits, different access to nutritionals, different access to meals, uh, different habits they get from their childhood or from the place, you know, from the family, from the neighborhood. For everyone, these things are so customized that I just don't see technologies coming out that would solve their problems on a population-based level. Maybe that's why it's so hard to help a patient find out what diet to follow. Just imagine that with my microbiome sequencing data, I had to go to a nutritionist and a primary care physician. With my genome sequence data, I had to go to a genetic counselor to get some insights about what I can expect next. Mm -hmm. When I did not genome sequencing, but basic genetic testing from the different companies, I get genetic counselors from them and I brought the report to my primary care physician. Who will summarize all this for me then what I should eat from tomorrow? Nobody can do that for you. And I still use an app through which I do meal planning. It's so customized that without my efforts and contribution, I'm afraid nobody will tell me what to do. But I can use the trial and error method. I try a few things based on the insights I got from these people. These people made those insights available based on my data. But then I will try things and see if they work or not. I understand the vastness of nutrition. I've been saying on this podcast for a long, long time that we all need to look into, I hate the word diet. I really just really heavily dislike the word diet, but lifestyle, but the blood type lifestyle. And it's not normally accepted in Western health culture, although it's been around for eons. I don't know the exact number, thousands of years per se, in Eastern culture. And Based on that, adjusted myself to my microbiome and the blood type lifestyle that I'm leading towards, minimal meat and more of the plant-based diet is more where I need to go. And since I have adjusted there, everything has completely shifted for me. Everything. Now, we had a few of the doctors on early before in this country, and I, I cannot speak for outside of the United States, but in this country, Specifically, they do not teach nutrition. They used to, but they stopped teaching nutrition outside of one course. And so now you need to go see a specialist. So that's one frustrating point for patient consumers. The other part is everything's a specialty. The physicians are no longer talking to each other openly. You now have to really put a hard effort in to say, okay, my nutritionist needs to talk to my cardiologist. My cardiologist needs to talk to my oncologist, et cetera. 
they're not openly talking to each other. And it's a frustrating point for a lot of patient consumers. Knowing what you know of what's coming down the pike with these organizations and companies, is that going to be clarified? Is that going to be worked on? Or is it still going to be a pain point for the patient consumer? I think that's logistically almost impossible for those people to talk to each other, even though there is absolutely obvious benefit of doing that. Mm -hmm. But I think if we can free up the work primary care physicians do today with the health gadgets that we can use, so we don't have to take their time, meet them in person for every minor health issue we have, but most of those things we can just deal with through digital channels in a much more accurate and quick way, we can use the remaining time to have these conversations with our primary care physicians. And I'm saying that because I have a relationship with my physician just like that. She's a partner with me. We are in this together. She knows that I'm happy to contribute with efforts, energy and money, and a lot of time to having a, just a chance for a longer and healthier life. Mm. We have a prevention plan that she helped me design. She reads the studies. She's the expert and I'm following her advice. And of course, I bring my own insights through the data I measure about myself day by day. Sure. So we are in this together. When I ask for professional help about my nutrition, my microbiome test, my genetic counseling service, and so on, I brought these things together and brought everything to her. And I think primary care physicians are the ones who can help us with that. But now being so much overwhelmed as they are, their advice, not a yeah. country-specific problem, we just won't have the chance. And if you don't go to your primary care physician today, don't try this at home, and you ask them, I would love to create a preventive plan with you because I want to live a long and healthy life and I have no health issues now, but I want to keep it that way for as long as possible. Sure. What should I do based on the newest studies and recommendations? You will be sent away. You will be sent home. We have patients to deal with and there is no time for that. So that's that's <laughs> the kind. And, and my physician told me that I'm the kind of patient she became a primary care physician for. Yeah. So they want to do this, but we we don't allow them to do that. We make them focus on more pressurizing issues. Maybe if we can free that time up with technologies, we could get this back. And that's exactly where I think the tech should go and where it needs to go since the med tech and health tech arenas are significantly blooming and producing more and better gadgets and technologies for these people who need it the most. The ultimate responsibility always lies with the patient, though. They need to be eating well, sleeping well reducing as many pharmacological drug therapies as possible and having a better diet. That's first and foremost. You brought up your first point, doctor, about vaccinations. When someone receives the shot around the present virus that's plaguing the world, there are two sides to the story. Like, yes, you absolutely need to get that therapy so we can move on. And there's a lot of side effects at the same time. This particular RNA and the research around it has been rushed. There is probably a 50-50 argument and debate that it's been rushed so much it's experimental. First off, where are you on that? I understand that you think that everyone should uh, receive the therapy, but as far as when it comes to the experimental, do you have any comment to that? Of course, I'm happy to. So mRNA vaccines are new in that sense that we could use it against such an infectious disease. Mm -hmm. Same type has been used before. It was experimented on the Zika virus back then a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. And in many cancerous uh, conditions, patients have been receiving mRNA-based vaccines. There are patients who have received dozens of these vaccines before without any known complications. Mm -hmm. I do understand the concerns that it seems like a very new thing and it has been rushed. I just want to make sure that it has not been rushed. 
the clinical trial part of producing a vaccine, developing a vaccine, simply physically cannot be rushed. We have to wait that many months to see that how patients react to in phase one, phase two, phase three. So the clinical trial part was not rushed, just like any times before. But the documentation part is the one thing that could be rushed because it's an unprecedented challenge that we face as humanity. Mm-hmm. And thus, medical agencies and regulatory agencies stood up to this challenge and tried to be as fast as possible. 65 million people have been vaccinated as of today. Uh, most of them got about 60-70% of them got the mRNA-based vaccine. There are no known major complications, nothing different than before. Side effects are just like for the flu uh, vaccines that most of us get every single year. Even though I still understand if someone still have concerns about them, in that case, there are two options. One, there are other types of vaccines, more traditional types of vaccines coming up in the pipeline. The one from AstraZeneca, I think it was approved by the UK a few days ago, maybe a week ago or so. There are more traditional types coming from China and Russia. Mm-hmm. In that sense, I only believe, if it's a belief, I only trust vaccines that have studies published in high-level international peer-reviewed studies, peer-reviewed medical journals. If I can read the study, then I see the facts. I know that it has gone through peer review and peer review is the is the highest standard in a scientific or a research yeah. work in Agreed. general. If there is a vaccine without any studies being published in international journals, but their governments are backing them, for me personally as a scientist, it's just not enough. I don't believe in governments. I believe in peer-reviewed studies. Mm-hmm. So for myself, for my family, for my friends, I will advise them and I will get myself any vaccine that has been approved by the FDA, the European Medicines Agency or WHO. If those vaccines have studies, even if it's an mRNA-based vaccine or a traditional type, I will get that happily. I will be the first in the line. But a second thing we have to keep in mind while having concerns about each type of vaccines is that if you have the vaccine, there is a very low chance that even if you get COVID-19, you will get a serious disease or you will get hospitalized or you will die. We sure. see that now. Mm-hmm. It's, it has a 97% efficiency rate, which is simply amazing, a scientific achievement of one of the biggest milestones in the history of science in, in general. If you say that you don't want to get the vaccine because you have concerns about long-term complications, I think you have to say it out loud in your mind that then to see all the long-term complications, if there are any, again, no data indicated there is any, but if there are any, mm-hmm. you have to wait three or five years. For three or five years, COVID-19 won't go anywhere. We will live with COVID-19 for three or five years, if not a decade from now on, if we don't get vaccinated. And in the meantime, it's a Russian roulette. If you get the disease itself, if you get hospitalized, if you die or not, it doesn't matter if you're a healthy young person doing exercise every day like myself, you know, taking vitamins, having a good diet. We've seen the studies, nothing of this sort matters. It's totally random. I think I have no doubts that we will understand that by time. Now we only know that maybe it's genetic, maybe it's about different immune systems we have, but I've seen perfectly healthy people with amazing lifestyles going through weeks of agonizing struggle in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people with chronic conditions going through that without symptoms. It doesn't matter. So you cannot make sure that if I stay myself healthy, I will just get through that. You see, it's a Russian roulette. You cannot tell. And if you decide not to get vaccinated, first of all, you will not be allowed to go back to any kind of normal. You will need to produce negative tests 
I don't know, weekly. And it's, of course, so the cost is going to belong to you. And still, for many, many years, we will not leave COVID-19 behind our back. I understand the concerns. I do have concerns myself as a scientist. But if I see a peer-reviewed international study published in a high-level medical journal, we have to set a threshold that over the threshold, we have to trust something. If a study is published like that, I will trust that vaccine. If it's below that, I won't trust it. That's where I stand about vaccines. So I have a follow-up to that one particular question, but then I have another one that I don't want to forget because I did read your piece on the immunity passport, and it's a really special topic for me because on this podcast, we had Rohan Hall, the CEO of Votum, on at the end of the podcast said, we're the ones developing one of the immunity passport backbones with Oracle. It was one of those, you heard it here first type scenario, but I definitely want to jump back on that because it's an important point for everyone to understand. I do have to challenge you with this. I read both sides of the news, why you should, why you shouldn't, because I have to be fair and balanced. ICANN, I-C-A-N, the Informed Consent Action Network. You probably know this reporter, journalist, Del Bigtree. He had put out, they had sued the CDC. And the CDC was ruled by a federal court of law in the United States that they had to change their language on vaccines and how it relates back to autism. For years, the original language stated vaccines did not cause autism or any autism spectrum-based neurological brain disease. The courts came back just recently as of last week and said, no, that's no longer true. There are no studies. Going back to the point you just made, because this is where I land, is if we're changing something that was supposed to be concrete, carvings and marble, and now all of a sudden it's changed, and we have COVID-19 and viruses moving forward that we're going to have to really heavily consider having those drug therapies, how are we supposed to disseminate that information? I think this issue is more about the kind of language science uses. We all know the story of that scientists who falsely claim, now we know that based on studies, that vaccines do cause autism. Now we know that they don't cause autism. But science has a subtle language. Even though we have studies claiming that those claims were just false and made up, we still as scientists cannot say that vaccines do not cause autism because we simply cannot say that. It might happen in the future. Nothing indicates that. But we cannot say that. Science has a subtle language. And what's on the other side of that right now with anti-vaxxers and misinformation is a very loud voice. Mm -hmm. And science simply cannot match that loud voice. It's trying medical associations, World Health organizations, some health governments trying to be at least descriptive about talking about the vaccine and why it makes sense to get vaccinated and get leave yeah. COVID behind. But it has a subtle language, and we cannot match that tone and that, that loudness in the voice of anti-vaxxers. And I guess that's going to stay the same way even decades from now. What we can do is that, for me, the model in this is Dr. Fauci leading the Infectious Disease Agency or Department in the US. And the way he describes these scientific facts, and he never you know, oversteps his boundaries. He never says that, well... Studies show this, but I think it's pretty obvious that it's going to be even more than that. He never says that. Science says this, and my job as a, as a spokesperson of science in general is to say out loud what people write down in studies in, in scientific language. 
that's all the things we can do. And, and unfortunately, nothing more for now. Going back to the immunity passport, how critical is that topic? And for that to happen for us to be able to get back to what quote unquote normal would be or what the media is talking about, but the immunity passport specifically. One, how far along are we? And then how important is it for us? It's simply incredible, if not unbelievable, that we in Q1 of 2021, we still have to question this, that whether how it's going to work. We've been we've known for a year now that vaccinations will arrive. And I thought by now governments would have clear plans about how to implement this in action. And what other ways would you know that someone has been vaccinated so maybe they can travel more freely than others? It seems that different countries will choose different solutions. In Israel, where 40% of the population have been vaccinated so far, I checked it this morning, they have a green booklet, a paper-based green booklet. But the fact that someone has been vaccinated also goes into the national digital database of the health ministry. So they will have both digital and paper-based immunity passports. In Hungary, we will have a plastic card that we can take with us saying that it shows that I've been vaccinated. I've seen the international airline agency coming up with the application called Common Pass that would be able to communicate with the databases of health ministries worldwide. Thus, the app can make sure if your claim that you were vaccinated is true based on your nation's health ministry's database. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you can travel more freely than others. So there is no doubt that some form of immunity passport will exist. But again, when every country uses a different solution, this is going to be a logistical nightmare. Yeah. That's why I laid out three scenarios last year for 2021. And we are in the optimistic scenario right now, still. We might still shift to the third one, but we are in the <laughs> second one for now. And in that, I wrote that if before the end of 2021, we go back to any kind of sort of new normal, that's a very optimistic scenario. Sure. And you know, I'm a keynote speaker normally. I would travel around the world giving speeches on stages, talking to governments and talking at medical conferences. I love doing that. Last March, 50 of my keynotes got canceled in a week or so. And I haven't traveled since then. I've been in Budapest for a whole year. The first time in my life since I was a kid. And I would love to go back to traveling again. I just don't see how I would be able to travel freely and openly before Q3, Q4 this year. And that's a very optimistic scenario because it means that there is a medical event where I have to go sure. to speak on a stage. So then they have to, you know, buy the, the hotel space and the everything about the event right now to have the event in actually one year from now, not even six months from now. So I guess even for 2021, life is going to be something like what we had in 2020. I find it just the United States. This is where I was born and raised myself. State to state, they have different requirements for driver's licenses. State to state, they have different requirements for voting practices. State to state, they have different practices for anything where you need to present an ID. If we can't get that straight in our own country within 50 states, how do we expect to be able to do that globally over so many countries? Very challenging, and you're absolutely right. It's going to be a nightmare logistically. In a year or so from now, on, we get used to dealing with these logistical issues and maybe from 2022, some countries might find a way, or maybe organizations can find a, a common solution, but it's just the optimist talking out loud. Yeah. I just don't see this happening in the practical reality of today. I love how we're just, you're reading my head and I love this. So my next question to you is, what are you most optimistic about moving forward? 
You get wow. to see a lot of technology. So what's you're looking for and waiting for that technology or that announcement of a technology to come out? I'm very optimistic about the vaccines that they exist, that there will be a range of choices. If you have concerns about the new type, you can go back to the old type. If you have concerns about a vaccine coming from a company from a country, then you can go back to a different one. I'm optimistic about the, the choice that we might have here very soon. I'm very optimistic about the rate of adoption that has really mm. changed over the last couple of months in digital health. That now there is no reluctance because otherwise people wouldn't be able to receive or provide care for others. Right. I hate saying this out loud, but if anything positive can come out of the pandemic, of course, nothing positive comes out if millions of people died. But maybe it might be this, this notion that digital health just saved us 10 years and all these technologies are here. We just have to learn how to use them. Maybe there is a third thing I'm very optimistic about. And for many months, I've thought that when we can say out loud that we can leave the pandemic behind, we would not be celebrating, but we would be so exhausted that it would take months to just come back to our senses. But now seeing like Israel getting to 40% of people being vaccinated, uh, US, and now it's over 20 million, I think. It's happening, even though it's slow and We've seen the scandals like in Italy, 100,000 people who are not frontline workers found a way to get the vaccine and celebrities around the world get the vaccine for no reason, not having chronic conditions, not being healthcare professionals, but still these things happen. But I still believe and I'm optimistic about the notion that when it ends, this could mean a new era for humanity. We came together and we could tackle this together with dignity and, and we found a way to improve healthcare in general. We learned how to use technologies in education. We changed how we work in offices or how we don't work in offices anymore. I like new things. I like change. And a lot of changes will come after the pandemic ends. And, and I'm always optimistic about such changes. I'm a huge fan of change as well. It's necessary in what most, not that they don't know, but they don't realize as common as they should, is that every second, the second ticks forward, it's a change. So it's happening all around you. Just accept it as what it is. You're a really educated guy. You have a large responsibility in front of you with the publications that you put out and especially with the people that you serve at the corporate level as far as how you consult them. How do you choose to educate yourself? What books are you reading? What journals, peer reviews are you listening to and reading? What audiobooks? Wow. I think the best way I can describe this is that these days I learn more than during my PhD. I have to constantly do all these things. So first of all, I read books only in paperback. I, I don't read e-books. I could, and of course, I love technologies. But this is something that's close to my soul and my heart, and I love reading books. So every night before going to bed, I read mostly science fiction books because it helps me in my job and yeah. prepare for whatever <laughs> is coming next. Sure. Sometimes books are that are more about the future of healthcare, foresight methods, technological trends, topics like that. Mm -hmm. I have my favorite resources. I use an RSS reader on feedly.com. I have about 100 favorite resources. Some of them are healthcare-based. Others are medical. Some of them are technological journals. There are some future-oriented journals like futurity.org, uh, futurism.com, stuff like that. I read them every day. I take time every morning, very early morning, to go through these channels. I choose the articles that got my attention, and I save them on the application called Pocket. When I can dedicate time to reading through really hard materials, 
Then I sit down, open up my pocket application, it's for free, and then I go through those articles. When I go out for a run, I get the application, read the articles out loud for me. So I don't listen to podcasts that often these days because there are so many articles I have to get through that I even read studies out loud. I mean, the the application reads this out loud for me while running. Mm. I have about 15 medical journals I watch quite closely. And then when a new study comes out, I check it out. I have Google Alerts notifications set up. So I know when something important in my research field comes up, I will get notification about that. I spend a lot of time playing chess. I started learning chess two years ago with a professional chess, international chess master, Armin Juhas, because I wanted to build a knowledge that might be a common language with AI. I know it's a weird idea, but my idea was that <laughs> if there is a platform on which I understand what artificial intelligence is doing, mm-hmm. then I might be a better position to understand the same things for medical and healthcare purposes. And now after about 1,500 hours of chess, and I'm, I'm doing this every single day, at least one and a half hours every day, I look at the position that uh, an AI-based chess program plays, and I sort of understand what's going on. I have a common language. I can't talk in full sentences in that language, but I understand I wouldn't get lost in that language. That mm. was the idea behind learning chess. So I learn chess every single day. Plus, I think it physically <laughs> expands my mind, learning about new tricks and just expanding my memory, my knowledge about all these chess openings and the, the rules and principles. It's really amazing. One of our new shows that we just started uh, watching pretty frequently is called Queen's Gambit. You probably heard oh, of it amazing. on Netflix. It's really an unbelievable show. It's really worth it. On top of that, this morning, myself, I was listening to a short clip with Brian Rose on London Real. And I forget the gentleman he was speaking with in an interview, but he was talking about information on mirror neurons, on how we're able to learn as quickly as Neo was learning in the matrix and knowing how to activate under the sixth layer of that neuron base. After that conversation, I followed up with another TEDx talk on how to learn a language within six months. And they directly correlated. And there wasn't like a an autoplay type thing. I actually went and looked and said, okay, I want to learn. Because I do want to start, because of Queen's Gambit, of course, picking up chess, because I'm fascinated with just the multiple, just multiple positions and setups you can put yourself in. My final question for you, you can leave the audience with everything, anything you want. What would you like to leave them with? Wow. I would love to ask everybody to read and watch science fiction. We are living in quite unprecedented times. Agreed. Things are changing quite fast these days. I hate saying such a vague thing out loud, but science fiction helps prepare for whatever is coming next. It, it's like daydreaming in a way that you still work because you want to get ready, yeah. but in an enjoyable way. So please read and watch as much science fiction as you can consume. Thank you again for jumping into another episode of Healthcare 360 with Dr. Mesco. He is someone who I look to. You are a part of my RSS feed, doctor. So thank you thank for you so all the great for work that you do. You can find him at medicalfuturist.com. We will put links to him directly. Dr. Masco, is it okay if I share your email address in there as well if someone wants to reach out? Please, of course. Yeah, so I'll, I'll do that as well. Thank you for joining. We always appreciate you. Thank you for the best and brightest. Again, if you are listening on Apple and you haven't subscribed, please do so. We are grown by leaps and bounds on YouTube, so hit the subscribe button, notification bell. Dr. Masco also has a YouTube page, so please look up TMF, the medical futurist. He's 
expanding here the brand new studio. He is delivering to the best and brightest. This is what I call my audience, the best and brightest. The best in quality, so it's clean, it's transferable, and it's understandable, so you can use that information immediately. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next time. Take care. Three, two. Dr. Masco, you're brilliant. I love it. Thank you so much, Scott. Amazing questions. I really enjoyed the discussion. Best and brightest, thank you for listening, and I hope this valuable insight from Dr. Masco will give you a vision of the future so you can prepare now and live your best, healthiest life. If you would like more information from Dr. Mesco, please visit medicalfuturist.com. How can you help support Healthcare 360? Share this episode with others and share the information you learn with someone you love or needs help. I look forward to reading your YouTube comments and Apple reviews, or possibly even speaking in person. From all of us with the Healthcare 360 team, we thank you. We'll see you for episode number 73. See you next time.